So this morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the gospel-centered life material. And if you've been here the last few weeks or tuning in, uh, you've began, probably began to see the same themes creeping up again and again. In particular, I've been harping on this truth that in Jesus, God is fully and joyfully satisfied in you. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Right? This is kind of the, the core essence of the gospel. And I hope we're beginning to see how this provides such freedom for us. Recognizing that the burden to try to receive God's favor is no longer upon us. It's not conditional upon how we are living at this moment. What that means is there's nothing that we can do to make God love us anymore. But conversely, which is what I really appreciate, I cannot screw it up right? I can't do something to make God love me less. God is satisfied in you because God is satisfied in Jesus. Now, I was chatting with Will a few weeks ago about this content. Now, Will, uh, some of you know Will. He usually comes Tuesday night. Uh, He's the one that gave the call to the offering last week. Um, he, when Will was a freshman at the University of Pittsburgh, that's, I, I was currently on, on staff there as a campus minister, and he and a, a few other first-year students were, we were all in a discipleship group together, and we studied this, the gospel-centered life. It's one of my go-tos. And he recounted, he's like, I think this is like the third time that I've been through this material. And that gave me pause for a second. I was like, I wonder how many times I've gone through this. I actually don't know. But as I thought about it, I was thinking, you know, this is probably like my eighth or ninth time going through the gospel-centered life content. And what I told Will that I appreciated about it is that it, for me, it doesn't get stale. Just because I recall these truths today doesn't mean that I'm going to remember them three months from now or I'm going to remember them a year from now. I'm prone, as probably many of you are as well, I'm prone to forgetting And so by going through this series, once again, it's been a blessing to me because I know many of the time, like many of the things that we're talking about is really basic Christian theology. It's basic stuff. But I hope that as we continue to dive into the substance, that God will continue to reveal nuggets of truth in it. Maybe for the first time you hear something that you're like, I didn't even think about that. Or maybe it's things that you need to take off the shelf and dust off because it's things you've kind of forgotten about. So to that end, let's jump in our material this morning. We're going to try, I'm going to try to address the question, what is the place of obedience in the Christian life? In other words, why is it that we obey God? For the last three weeks, I've stood up here and shared over and over again that our righteousness, our justification, our good standing with God is not based upon our performance. And so what do we make of the law. What place does the law have in our, our lives? I mean, the Bible is filled with rules, like hundreds of ways that God has said that we should live our lives. If we are under grace, what is the place of these rules? What is the place of continued good works? So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll just be here very briefly to introduce things. You know, we're going to look at one of the many verses that is used to justify our understanding of salvation is by faith, by grace. It's not by anything that I did. So Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 8 and 9, or you can listen to me too. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's pause here for a second. Now, this is exactly what I've been saying over the last few weeks. Our salvation is purely by the grace of God, not because of anything that we've done. It is a gift, and a gift isn't something that you earn, right? It's something that you're given. In fact, this is a a little bit of a side tangent, but, you know, well, maybe I won't go there. I don't want to spoil anyone's Christmas. I won't go there. Let's get back in here. So twice in this passage, we see this very thing, right, that it's not our own doing, that we haven't done anything to earn it. And that concept is restated in verse 9, right? that it's not a result of works. But it's important to look in the, at these passages in context. So let's see what comes next. So what does Paul say in verse 10? Just saying, we're saved by grace. You didn't do anything to earn it. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do or for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There it is. This is the ESV. It says that we are God's workmanship. The NIV translates that as God's handiwork. But my favorite translation is the New Living Translation, the NLT, which says that we are God's masterpieces. The Greek word that is used here is poema. It's where we get our English word poem. Verse 10, in essence, is saying that we are God's poetical ballad to the world. And the verse continues by saying that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's a way that we reveal the beauty of God. So indulge me for a moment, for a little paraphrase. So God has saved us, and he's turned us us from something that was destitute and broken into something that was beautiful. God created a masterpiece out of something that was ruined. And I think one of the reasons that he did that was in order to just blast this love song, this ballad of God, out to the world. He called us to be beautiful, to reflect it. And I'm taking a small liberty, but that's how I'm paraphrasing this idea of good works, right? Our our beauty, because our works aren't what save us, right? Verses 8 and 9 are very, very clear about that. But the importance of verse 10 is that it reveals to us that there is still a place for obedience to the law, right? Obedience to God in the Christian life. If we have put our trust in Jesus Christ, walking on the straight and narrow is not what saves us. But that also means that living a shameless life isn't going to lead to damnation either. If we are in Jesus, we have entered into and are sustained into the kingdom of God, period, full stop. That's verses 8 and 9. But living in alignment with God's standards is what He desires from us. He desires for us. And it reveals His glory and goodness to those around us. Now think about it this way. I'm a big fan of classical composer Gustav Holst. Uh, Specifically, what he's probably most famous for is his orchestral suite called The Planets. And my favorite piece in the entire Uh, kind of musical piece, is a two-minute section called the Jupiter Hymn, 
right? The, like the Jupiter, the bringer of jollity, is one of the pieces, and it's about seven or eight minutes long. But right in the middle of that, it's what's called the Jupiter hymn. And in my opinion, it's some of the most beautiful and regal music written. Now, let's say you're listening to a performance of that, and the French horn, which is one of the primary instruments of the section, is horribly out of tune. Right? As soon as they start playing, you're going to cringe. Right? The dissonance is going to be staggering. You're like, why am I listening to this? But even if that happens, the truth is that the player, right, the French horn instrumentalist, is still in the orchestra, right? They're still part of that community. Even though what they're playing sounds awful to your ear, it doesn't diminish the, the original, the, the beauty of the original version of the music, right? It doesn't diminish the beauty of what was written by Gustav Holst. But it is going to leave the audience shortchanged. So if we are God's masterpieces, then what we ought to want to do is to faithfully reflect His goodness and beauty to a watching world. And I know it's not a perfect analogy, but, but I believe that living in line with God's truths are essential. It's an essential part of our call to, to reflect the goodness and grace of God to our neighbors in the broader world. And we can't do that if we're living our lives out of tune to God's standards. So back to my original question, how is it that we deal with the law in light of the work of Jesus Christ? I would suggest that, the, that Christianity has kind of three main approaches to how they have considered the law. Legalism, license, and the gospel. So let's first look at legalism. Now legalism, I would say, is largely what we have spent the last three weeks focusing on, right? Because legalism is when we attempt to gain God's approval by my right conduct with the law. Basically, I want God to love and approve of me, and so I'm going through the motions of doing all the, you know, quote-unquote, right things as a Christian. Now we wouldn't always admit this, but I'd argue that this is actually a way that we are seeking to try to control God. If I'm doing what I think God wants me to do, then as a result, he's going to be happy with me. And if God is happy with me, then he's going to send blessings upon my life, and I'm not going to have to deal with suffering. It's kind of the thought process that we go through quite often. I mean, rarely are Christians working to earn their salvation. We acknowledge that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we often try to control our day-to-day -day environment through our good works. I've spoken to countless individuals who hold to a, what I call like a pseudo-Christian karma. Uh, like the concept of karma is not at all compatible with the gospel, but we live as if there's this like Christian edge to karma. Right? We believe that if we put good in, we'll get good out. And if we put bad in, then like, God's going to punish us. We'll get bad out. And one of the ramifications of how we deal this, or how we, how we handle this, is, is how we deal with suffering in our life. We're never promised an easy life. God has told us that He will take care of us. He's told us that He loves us, that He will provide for us but not once did he say that that path will be carefree. I mean, look at the paths of the disciples, those who were closest to Jesus. 
there were moments of clear deliverance by God. For example, right, Peter, I'm reading through Acts again through, through my, one of my devotionals, uh, and, and, you know, God bre- breaks Peter out of prison so that he can preach the gospel. Right? He's delivering Peter. But Peter's journey towards Christ ended with him being crucified upside down. Right? Not because of Peter's disobedience, but actually because Peter was obedient to the call that God had placed upon his life. One of the primary themes in the book of Galatians is Paul writing against a legalistic mindset, right? Take Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, that question, it's worded. The Greek tense, it's worded in such a way to assume a negative response to the first question, right? They didn't receive the Spirit through, through, uh, by the law, and a positive one on the second, that it was by faith. And so, we could, listen to verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you're now being perfected by the flesh? And that last verse gets me every time. Are you so foolish that having this process started by the Spirit of God, you're now going to finish it off by your own effort. The Galatians were full of people who sought to earn God's favor, mostly through the keeping of the Jewish law, things like circumcision or dietary laws or not fraternizing between Jew and Gentiles. In hindsight, it's easy to see the errors of the Galatians. Like, surely we don't behave in that way. But legalism is endemic to our churches. Let me give you an example. How many of you, you can raise your hand if you want to, you don't have to, but how many of you feel that as a discipline, you ought to, not that you do, but you ought to read your Bible daily? Do you think that's something that we should be doing? I'd concur, right? It's a good discipline for us to have to get to know God better, to get to know ourselves better. But how many of you feel guilty because you didn't read your Bible today, or yesterday, or this past week, or this past month? Let me take it one step further. Have you ever felt like, because you have gone for a long stint in doing this thing of reading your Bible that we all would probably agree that God wants us to do, that because we haven't read the Bible in X number of days or X number of months, that God is displeased or frustrated with you? Or perhaps that he's just kind of going to drop the hammer on you because you haven't been keeping up your end of the bargain? I mean, this is, this is a little sort of embarrassing to admit, but there was a time in my life that one of my most stressful times of year was my annual car inspection when that was due. I don't know cars very well, and when something goes on those cars, it can be pretty pricey, and sometimes it, I felt like I was going in blind to these inspections. I'm like, it feels like playing, playing uh, roulette, you know, playing craps, I don't know, whatever gambling analogy you want to use. It's like, is it going to just be, you know, nothing's wrong, or is it going to be like 3000 No, probably not $3,000, but a lot of money nonetheless. And what would happen would be, is there were seasons, these were seasons that I wasn't praying very regularly. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, throwing up prayers when I felt like it. But I found, what I found myself doing is praying pretty regularly the week leading up to that inspection. God, like, let this be manageable. 
Have you ever tried to make a deal with God like, God, you know, if you let this year be under $300, like I promise I'll get back to reading the Bible regularly or praying regularly or doing X, Y, or Z, whatever it might be. Like, I, I don't know if you can relate to that. But when we attempt to bargain with God, what it reveals, it reveals a lack of belief in us that God doesn't naturally have our best heart, our best interests at, at heart. That we feel like we need to fight and plead for every inch that he'll get us. And we use our behaviors as a negotiating tool to get God to act on our behalf. Friends, if you've done anything like what I just described, it's not the gospel, that's legalism. Right? Cue the broken record. God is fully satisfied in you right now because he is satisfied in Jesus. His joy over you is not based upon anything that you have done. And what this means is that your life can be a complete mess and he still loves you. You could choose to not read your Bible ever again for the rest of your life and God would still be pleased in you because he is pleased in Jesus. I'm not advocating for that. It's not my prescription. But I'm just saying, if that is the case, God's love for you is not based upon your, your performance. If you have embezzled money from your company, if you have had an abortion, if you received a DUI, if you've had trouble getting rid of your potty mouth, I fully believe that God would still love you and be satisfied in you if you have put your faith in Jesus. Now, I'm being somewhat purposely provocative in order to get us to our next point. Because the radical nature of the gospel is there is literally nothing that you can do to lose God's love once you have it in Jesus Christ. But I'm willing to bet that some of those behaviors that I just described are things that we would all agree are not really becoming of a follower of Jesus. We probably shouldn't be doing those things. So let's talk about the second way in which Christians often deal with the law or can deal with the law. If the first was legalism, trying to earn God's favor through right living, we now come to the polar opposite, which is license. License dismisses the law because we are under grace. It focuses on those first two verses that we read from Ephesians chapter 2, right? that we are under grace and that's all that matters. License is why the church at Corinth received a scathing letter from Paul. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about a situation where a guy in the church was sleeping with his stepmom. Right? The church didn't just ignore the situation, but they were celebrating it. They were like showing the world around them, like, look how much freedom we have in Jesus. Paul chastised them. He's saying, like, the stuff that you guys are doing, like, that's not even tolerated in the pagan and immoral communities around you. He says, get your act together. Like they were like that French horn that was grossly out of tune. It's hindering every other, pe you know, other people around them from seeing the beauty of God. Now, I, I like the way that Paul addresses it in uh, Romans, in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 5, Paul very eloquently lays out our justification, our good standing with God based upon the atonement of Jesus Christ. 
right? It's in chapter 5 that we get that beautiful verse, chapter 5, verse 8, right? that picture that God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So he's just kind of wrapped up this exposition of our salvation through faith, or excuse me, salvation through grace. And then Romans 6 begins this way, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In essence, what's happening here is Paul is taking them to the logical conclusions of the nature of grace. If God has poured out his grace on us by covering our sins, and if that grace is a really good thing, why not just keep sinning so that God, you know, it's kind of thinking about it uh, quantitatively. Why not just keep sinning so that God can keep lavishing the world with more and more grace? Now, Paul's response is very strong. The ESV renders it by no means, but it's one of the harshest negations in the Greek language. It would be like saying, like, should we just keep sinning so that God can keep showing grace? Paul responding with, hell no. That's basically what he said. If you're asking that question, he's saying, you haven't understood anything that I just said. The lavish grace of God is a wonderful thing. It is beautiful to be out from under the thumb of legalism, not feeling this overwhelming burden in your relationship with God. Not not just worrying that he's waiting for you to screw up so that he can come down hard on you. But when we have tasted that freedom there is a measure of restraint that we need to show ourselves, right? Like Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. Or, you know, like with great freedom comes great responsibility. I don't know if any Spider-Man fans in the house. Just like you would, it would probably be a mistake for you to give the keys to your supercharged Corvette to your newly licensed 16-year-old child, right? With that kind of power, and the lack of maturity through life experience, your child might be attempted to try to break the sound barrier you know, with it. Clearly not a responsible use. The law does not continue to bear weight in our lives, so we reject legalism, but we need to make sure that we don't kind of sail too far in the opposite direction and dismiss it entirely. Eh, the law doesn't matter. I don't, need to, I don't need to live rightly because God shows me grace. So now we're back to square one. What is the rightful use of the law in our lives? And this brings me to my third option, how the gospel deals with the law. Just the fact that I titled it the gospel, you're probably like, all right, this is the right answer. Right? This is the one we've been looking for. The gospel-centered engagement with the, the law is as follows. First, the law, and some of this you can find um, biblically supported in, in Galatians. First, the law drives us to the gospel. The law drives us to Jesus. And this fits in what I shared with that very first week. Let's put this, this screen up here, right? Got to get the cross chart up here at least once a sermon. When we see this expansive understanding of God's holiness and our awareness of our sinfulness, we recognize more fully, right? The law reveals that bottom line. You could argue the law reveals the top line too. But it shows the gap that exists between God and us. It reveals to us how deficient we are before him. Martin Luther described that the purpose of the law was to slay us in our sin. It reveals to us what a need we have in Jesus. 
But from there, the gospel then, when rightly understood, frees us to obey the law, not out of obligation, not because we have to, but because we get to. Living in alignment with the narrow path of God that He's laid before us is a way that we can showcase our gratitude to God. And so what this means is that the path of the Christian life is alternating between this recognition of our deficiency, trusting in Christ to close that gap, and inviting God to transform us from the inside out. And this specific cadence, right, it's a daily rhythm, and we're, we're, that's what we're going to look at a little bit more in, in greater detail next week. We're going to look at the power of God's Holy Spirit to work that transformation in us. But for now, I want to give us a framework to understand how this gospel this gospel rhythm works. And I've got five steps to share with you. They're, they're all very brief. Step one, God says. It's a recognition that God says. God has determined that there is a right way for humanity to live. We acknowledge the goodness of God's law, that it's there for our benefit, that it's there for the flourishing of society but I cannot. I can't keep it. I keep breaking it. I keep failing. Become aware of your disobedience to the law. Again, I know this is review. You've heard me say it multiple times, but we recognize our deficiency from our ability to keep the law. But thankfully, Jesus did recognize that we are freed from the curse of the law through the gospel. Right? We don't have to obey the law because Jesus obeyed every facet of it perfectly. And additionally, Jesus suffered the curse of the law. The punishment that was for us fell upon him instead. And so, Jesus did. We trust the gospel. We trust the gospel, right? We experience the freedom from the law. Because Jesus did, because Jesus obeyed, in light of the good news of the gospel, God has sent His Holy Spirit to live with us and transform our hearts so that we can truly love God, love others, and obey the law. Like I said, we're going to look a little bit more at this step in particular next week. But too often, we try to bypass this step We try to short-circuit to the next one and just force ourselves to obey. But instead, we need to pause here. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to change us, to shape and fashion us into creatures that are obedient to God's law. Think about that passage in Ezekiel where God says to the prophet that he will take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That's what's happening here. We aren't the cardiac surgeons. We're not performing this operation on ourselves. It must originate with God. So again, put a pin in that because we're going to keep talking about that next week. And then lastly, step five is obey. We obey. Not out of duty, but out of delight. As we see more and more transformation in our lives, we will more naturally live in ways that honor and reflect God's goodness. We will find our affections slowly transformed by God for love for God, 
love for our neighbor. There's that famous ballad in, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, but it ends with love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. When we love God and we love others, we naturally fulfill the law of God that He has set before us. Now, having said all that, I want to close with one final challenge. After hearing everything that I've said, what if you say to yourself, like, I still just don't want to obey? What if you desire to continue to rebel against God's standards and live your own way? Do whatever you want to do. If this is you, and the thought of following God's quote-unquote rules feel oppressive, feel like a burden, something that you are not excited to do, I I just want to encourage you to take a thorough look at yourself. Because I'd suggest that there are probably two primary reasons for this. Reason number one is this, that we are a works in progress. Sometimes God has not finished working His transformation in a particular area of our life. So, you know, there might be an area where you just continue to be, you know, have this like selfishness rise up, continue to dig in your heels for one part of the law, because you still got a heart of stone in that area. That's going to happen, right? What What I'm describing is not looking at these like microcosms of your life. Because if that's the case, I would hope that you could identify other places in your life where you have seen this transformation, where you've seen that God's law becomes a delight for you. So not, you know, if it's just a microcosm, pray over that, right? God, uh, invite God to continue to do that work. But I think if you look at the broad spectrum of your life and you continue to find absolutely no joy in God's commands, I want to say this carefully, it's possible, I'm not saying that you are, but it's possible that you may not actually be a Christian. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon the other day, and he's explaining, and he's talking about the gospel as he often does, and kind of, you know, breaking apart uh, legalism and, you know, all these things, because so often we, like, think that God loves us because we have to do all the right things, right, what we've just talked about. But he was saying at the end, he's like, after hearing a sermon like this, you might actually realize you're not a Christian. And then he said, I just thought this was kind of funny tongue-in-cheek. He's like, He says, I I seem to have that effect on people. I'm not here to say who is in and who is out of the kingdom of God. Like, that's way above any kind of pay grade that I would ever claim. But I'm called to be a shepherd for the Lord's flock. I'm here to try to help people understand what their place is in the kingdom of God. Provide information, provide insight so that you can go and do what self-reflection you need to do with God. If at the end of the day, you are a bitter, disgruntled follower of Jesus, I'd ask you to take a look at your faith and see, is it actually Jesus that you're following? This is tricky, because the joy right? Any joy in the works of God are not the cause for salvation. That's the problem, is we often assume that in order to be saved, I need to have joy in these things. They are not the thing that causes you to have salvation, but they should be a consequence, an effect, a ramification of that salvation. And so, I would just invite you, if where I am leaving this makes you feel a little bit uneasy, let me know. Like, let's find a time to chat and to explore it in greater detail. 
God has called us to follow the law. We can't do it. But because Jesus did obey, we don't have to obey. But my hope would be, more and more, as God works His transforming work in our lives, we become more and more like the image of Jesus. And if there's anything Jesus did, it was that He followed the law naturally, out of joy. If we want to be like Jesus, that's what we ought to see in our lives, not by trying real hard, all right, I've got to force myself to like it this time, but to be seeing that, that heart of stone replaced and naturally being uh, transformed to do the works of God that He puts before us. And to that end, I want to invite us together, right, going back to that, that orchestra analogy, to join in the concerto, the music of God, and to do our best to play in tune with God's help, reflecting God's goodness through our faithfulness and our obedience to Him. Join me in prayer. God, there is, I don't even know what to say sometimes. May we just sit under your authority, your teaching, your love, recognizing that your favor for us is not conditional upon how we're living our lives. But Lord, also, if there are places where we are just being really controlling, we are being resentful, we are trying to cling to selfishness of how we want to live our lives, may we allow those fingers to release so that you can come in and and break those hearts of stone. Lord, that we might better reflect your love and goodness in our own lives, to our neighbors, to the world around us. God, may we be what Jesus called us to be, salt and light. As Eugene Peterson said, bringing out the God flavors and bringing out the God colors of the world. What good is salt if it's lost its taste, it's thrown out and trampled on the ground, you said. Lord, may we stay salty. May we stay vibrant as we live in alignment with the ways that you've said is right for us to do so. Give us the motivation and the power to see that transformation in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.